0: This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Improv in gumshoe, Ken's latest London book raid, our libraries, and Ralstonism. Last April, the secret masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the
1: legendary occult RPG
0: where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers.
1: But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in
0: the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available.
1: From the Deluxe Edition, whose three
0: volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen, to PDF, EPUB, and MOBI Digital Editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com
1: UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake.
0: So uh, we were cleverly disguising our last couple of episodes as episodes that uh, were being recorded in 2017, but that was a hoax. But this is our real first recording of 2017. Uh, we're back out of the land of banked segments. And I just, uh, before we get started, I want to have a quick preamble hut and uh, remind you that the Flat Plastic Miniatures uh, Ken and Robin promo is in full swing. This is a, a Kickstarter campaign for Flat. Plastic miniatures too, which is uh, a really groovy set of minis that are made on uh, transparent plastic, uh, and so you there are illustrations, uh, and so we've now had a chance to see the uh, preliminary sketches of the uh, Ken and Robin figures, and uh, Ken, yours is very it's sort of a, I'm very y- dapper, yeah, it's sort of a young anime Ken. Yeah,
1: th- th- that's good. I think that that will help us uh, appeal to that demographic, the young anime demographic.
0: Uh, yes and uh <laughs> and there's also uh and uh so, so we're both delusionally like, yeah <laughs> so our figures were cthulhu era adventurers uh which is why i am wearing a fedora because of course yes. i'm not normal um, the current robin would not
1: wear a fedora back back when wearing a fedora entitled you to punch out gunsles not be punched out
0: exactly <laughs> and there's like a uh there's a dracula of course uh the artist sort of taken inspiration from the Uh, John Kavalik illustrations on our site, and there's a uh, Cthulhu-headed dude. So those are really cool. So head on over to the uh, Flat Plastic Miniatures 2 uh, Kickstarter. You can either type that in on the Kickstarter search engine or follow the link from our show notes.
1: The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos... All Sonic cues welcoming you once more back into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. Peter Frampton coming alive there on the table, but behind Peter Frampton, there is only one die because we're talking about gumshoe here in the gaming hut because Patreon backer Zachary Joyner has asked us about improv GMing in gumshoe specifically, and to wit... What is the rough rate at which I should be giving out clues to what is really going on and how do I keep things from being dull without leading the players too much? Robin, these seem to be questions that are so deep in your alley as to be perhaps all the way up against the Robin laws building.
0: (laughs) Yes. My, my vast megaplex. Um, So the first point about improv is not about pacing. It's something that you need to do before you get to those pacing questions, which is have a a pretty good idea when you start what the mystery is going to be. You can change it a little bit in your head, but never to cheat the players out of the sense that they're solving a a mystery. So, uh, you know, don't pull the rug out from under them and... Uh, make it something completely different because A, uh, it's very difficult on the fly to keep track of what you said and what you haven't said and therefore to make the answer feel consistent. So, uh, you, you might have a vague idea, a general idea, and then fill it in as, as you go so that you, you, uh, know what you're doing and that the ending seems to rhyme with the beginning the way that uh, any good stories beginning and ending uh, match up. After that, the question of, uh, how how often to dole out clues, I think is better framed as always make sure that the players have at least one lead to follow and preferably more than one. Um, Now, obviously, once you start to reach the the climax of the scenario and they, you know, get to the place where there's the final confrontation, that's, that's a different matter. But as you're going along, Uh, If you make sure that there's always a a choice involved as to what to investigate, that will kind of take care of itself, because uh, in a multiplayer game, that then allows the players to, uh, you know, talk to each other, figure out what they're doing. And as long as they're happy and engaged, uh, you then don't have to drop anything uh, on them. If they start to get lost and don't know where to go or uh, are hopelessly divided, that's another more classic uh problem. Do you want to uh, tackle that?
1: Um, if they don't know where they're going or are arguing about where they should be going, then your goal is to either spend that time coming up with new uh, ways to get them to where they're supposed to be going or gently pointing out the information that they should already have because you've already given them the clues so that they can at least narrow their argument down to two productive directions as opposed to no productive directions or one productive direction and one distraction. And that's not a matter of um, uh, just saying go here or here. It might be a matter of saying as a seasoned uh, detective, you know that that someone was hiding something out at the old mill, or you might say as a um, uh, engineer, you realize there's something off about the reported ratios and maybe you need to go look at that factory uh, for yourself or something like that so that you provided in the mindset of the investigator. The other thing, obviously, is um, if they are turtling up as opposed to just tangled up, then you begin to put pressure on them from the outside world, either they're boss calls and says, damn it, the mayor's on my back, we need to get this case solved. Or the bad guys call and say, ha ha ha, you can't stop me and I'm going to kill again tonight. Or, um, you know, the Chandlerian two men with a gun bust in the door if it's more of an improv type situation.
0: Right. And so, uh, and if you weren't going to use the Chandler quote of uh, when in doubt in your plot, have a guy go th- through the door with a gun i was going to
1: if, if if there is a time that i could have used it and did not then that time has never occurred as far as i know
0: yes exactly it's it's part of the pledge we sign as uh, as game designers and dispensers of uh, gm advice and so, chandeliers. Uh, indeed yes all of those things and so uh after that uh the, the question just are, are there enough balls in the air or are there too many balls in the air, right? Those are the two things that cause pacing to break down in an investigative game. And assuming that you're taking notes and knowing your own head what's really going on, you can always uh, ask yourself uh, before you send that guy through the door with a gun, what is it that they don't know that will send them off in an interesting, fun direction and then have the guy who comes through the door with a gun know that thing and have a reason once they overpower him why he would have to uh, give it up. Uh, So, Ken, I think there's a a second part to that question.
1: Yes, the second part of the question is, how do I keep things from being dull without leading the players too much? And part of that is, you know, it's like the doctor says, uh, don't do that. Um, uh, If the players seem bored, then you need to provide them with stimulus. If uh, the story is dull, you need to add dimension to it, and that's probably not necessarily even adding a red herring, but as Robin says, if you have a notion of what the uh real mystery is, what the real solution is, you can have something that works to break it open a little more. Someone that they threatened into silence comes forward and says, you have to protect me, but I can't let that murder go unavenged or whatever. There has to be some aspect of the outside world that was also changed by the uh, mystery, by the murder or whatever it happens to be, that can then impinge on the player's consciousness and that is not leading the players. That's merely providing them with more information. It's the ripples from that dropped rock of the crime continuing to wash up against the players so that they recognize it.
0: Right, and in Gumshoe terms, if you look at the structure for a Gumshoe adventure, and it varies a little for each of the different Gumshoe games because there's a slightly different feel and experience that we're shooting for in each of them, but still, even though you're not running a structured adventure, you're running an improvised one, you can look at the elements that are demanded of a structured adventure in the core game that you're running and make sure that you have them. So in um, most gumshoe games, uh, the thing Ken is talking about here is called an antagonist reaction, because uh, if there are still active bad guys out there actively trying to do uh, something terrible, uh, which I would recommend almost all of the time, because otherwise you have no uh, conflict. You're just trying to determine what it is that happened in the past. And so, uh, you know, unless you're running some sort of cozy Agatha Christie sort of uh, murder mystery thing where, you know, the the murder is the one bit of impoliteness that the murderer has ever committed. And everything's going to be fine after that unless you uh, solve the case. But in most cases, like in a, a Cthulhu scenario or Ash Stars or, or what have you, there's something ongoing that the uh, bad guys are trying to do. So figure out uh, what they might do to continue to advance their cause, or even if they're not doing very much, what they do to defend themselves when they sense the presence of the investigators. So, uh, as you're uh, improvising your way through the uh, adventure, you presumably got some initial idea that you start with and then start to fill in, make a note, either just mentally or in your uh, prep notes, of a couple of different antagonist reactions that could happen and, uh, and how they, those reactions might get through to the players even if they're turtling up in their art studio or at the faculty lounge at Miskatonic university or, or whatever it is. So can, uh, when you find a, a gumshoe uh, adventure that you're improvising, and I assume you, you've done that as, as I have, <laughs> yeah. uh, are there other things that you have to watch out for uh, aside from the ones that uh, uh, we've been asked to address?
1: I, I think that you sort of headed one of those off the past where you said, make sure you don't get tangled up in your own improv, because that is a great way to sort of not just, Spoil the players' enjoyment of the game uh, because they're like, well, we could have, we, all we did is just sit here for three and a half hours and do nothing or or do random things until the mystery fell on our lap. Um, but you also wind up damaging the sense of verisimilitude to the world, which means you're also damaging role playing. So it is important, like you say, even in an improv situation, to have a really cl- either a really clear idea of what the situation is that they're investigating and what would rationally be a result of that thing having happened or have a, an incredibly tight grip on what you're improvising at any given time so that, uh, and, and the notion where the players are cutting away everything that doesn't look like the answer until they get to the answer that can be fun to role play, but you just can't allow a contradiction to exist. And so you have to have a grip on a possible explanation for contradictions. And even then, you should, you know, keep that down to a minimum. Uh, the other thing that I think when you're improving in gumshoe that is sort of the opposite problem that I find is players get excited about something, either a, an NPC who they enjoy talking to or a location where they feel like they're the big man and they can shove people around and it's not spooky and dangerous like down by the docks. And so they, they stay in that area and they're still role playing and having fun, but you need to sort of ease them off the dime a little bit. And that is sort of the other half of the challenge you know how do i keep things from being so interesting in the moment that they lose track of the bigger story or they allow themselves to not follow the bigger and almost always more dangerous story and the way to do that is to um, recognize when it's happening and shut it down on a gosh it was great talking to you again officer i sure hope i can see you you know later on after this murder has been resolved uh hint hint type situation
0: Right. And if you want to see uh, how to do that, old episodes of Law and Order, which I assume still run in syndication somewhere. <laughs> forever. Forever. Um, there, uh, In the first half of those uh, episodes, there's always a reason why the witness is in a hurry and uh, needs to go and do something else. And so, you know, you could compile a, a, a list of reasons why the witness needs to go somewhere else and make that part of the tension of the scene. Uh, they're really good at getting out of those scenes and making them really nice and, and quick and snappy. Or something else that you could do if the if there's sort of a side character that the uh, player characters are so interested in that they only want to hang out with that character. That character, A, has something really important to do. And B then goes off and gets killed by whatever the forces are behind the mystery. And then that ups the stakes and then forces them to uh, to do that. A- another scene that you will quite often get is the uh, players decide to go to the authorities, uh, whether it's their uh, boss who's told them to search out the mystery or, uh, you know, just the regular gendarmes or, or, or again, what is ever appropriate for the, the setting. And uh, you've got to shut that down pretty quick because by definition, they're the protagonists, and they're the ones who solve the mystery, and uh, uh, some players like to realistically explore that every darn time, and you just, you know, f- for that, uh, what I tend to do is just uh, break character and go, well, you know, you're you're the protagonists, So you have a long discussion, you know, and just align that into, you have a long discussion, frustrating discussion, in, in which the uh, police uh, sergeant is more interested in um, paperwork and protocol than in uh, believing your story and now you're back to where you were before. It's r- realistic often for characters to do that but not interesting because by, again, by definition, that's a, a scene that's not going to go anywhere.
1: Right, yeah. And, and really the solution is to build up enough trust with your uh, players that when you say, this is a time waster and the, and the character, uh, the NPC seems uh, to be, you know, stalling or delaying you or brushing you off, that the players say, all right, what that means is there's no more fruit here, or, you know, best case scenario, the fact of their stall is a clue, but we can't get anything from this guy. We have to go around him.
0: Now, uh, in the more unusual case of the overly efficient group of players, uh, <laughs> what what you can do is uh, add interest with a sort of a B story that somehow dovetails uh, with the mysteries. So, for example, in one of the recent uh, Yellow King role-playing game play tests, which I'm improvising because i haven't written any of the adventures for it yet and weirdly since this is a game i'm designing no one else has written any either um, it's so annoying it, isn't it it's yeah it's, <laughs> it's weird um what you can do is is uh in, in this case the character who was sort of driving the mystery was the mother of one of the player characters who shows up in town and she's mixed up with this uh, weird rejuvenation racket and of course you know, it, it's a horror genre. Rejuvenation is never a good thing. Yep. And uh, so that gave a B-story of that character's relationship to the mother character, uh, which of course was very fraught. And then all of the other uh, characters really loved the, the mother character and also wanted to hang out with her and do things. So that gave something uh, cool and fun that was going on that uh, gave them another goal to handle and another bit of moving parts to deal with so that Whenever they were interacting with her, it also felt like something uh, fun and interesting was happening, even though they weren't uh, directly solving the mystery in those scenes, although sometimes they were trying to get more information out of her and so forth. And Ash and Stars explicitly introduces the idea of having personal B stories to go with the mystery A story. And so that gives everybody a little break, uh, often a lighter uh, interaction in the main story. And then once they come back to the main story you go, okay, what are our, what are our leads? You know, we've got, you know, mother safely in the hotel room for now, but we know she's going to want to go outside again pretty soon. So we got better take this time and use it wisely. Who have we got on our list of people to, to talk to? And, uh, to just go back to, um, uh, one of those simple tips that you were alluding to earlier, um, you can always just tell the uh players that their characters have taken better notes than they have. Yeah. Or or notes. <laughs> if they haven't. And so you can say in a modern game you go, Well, up on your whiteboard you have, you know, three bullet points. You've got in the In your phone. <laughs> you've got the the mayor, you've got the uh groundskeeper, uh, and you have the newspaper editor. Or, you know, in your beautiful uh, sketchbook. You've uh, drawn a picture of the mayor and the groundskeeper and a big question mark where the newspaper editor is because you haven't gone and talked to her yet. And, uh, you know, that's a a simple way of affirming that there are leads for them to follow, but it doesn't feel quite as draggy by the nose uh, because you're evoking that sort of visual image and you're giving the characters credit for keeping track even if the players maybe haven't because of course the characters are there in the world they see what's going on and they are good investigators that's the premise of gumshoe so uh, i think we've uh pretty well investigated uh these questions we've and can improved our way through it improved our way through it as as per usual here on the, on the podcast and can now uh follow our final core clue which lies behind this here commercial
1: Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group?
0: Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One
1: book, Cthulhu Confidential,
0: combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction
1: with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos.
0: Complete with three dauntless
1: investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Sating
0: journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman
1: And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond Presenting three terrifying settings Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town, and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something
0: more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be
1: seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with...
0: Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified
1: has never been so much fun.
0: It's time to cast our memories back into the nostalgic mists of time, where uh, we head on back to our trip to London at the beginning of December. And Ken, as... Is traditional you hit a couple of bookstores, but you came away with a shorter pile than usual. Is London running out of books
1: i don 't know if London is running out of books so much that we have hit treadwells so often that uh, there may be some some overfishing in those grounds it 's not like the legendary uh, grand banks where the books would just climb up onto the shore and flop around gasping, waiting to be hauled in. Now there has to be some uh, sendingning and some dredging. Foils, of course, is as full of books as ever, but buying books new, even with the pound, uh, in, in a weakened state is not what I go to London for because I can buy new books in America mostly. So I think what it is is we've, we've just hit Treadwells a great deal and they, and they've taken a while to grow back. Uh, that's my assumption anyway. Perhaps I am wrong and we just hit a, a, a biorhythmic curve, but it would be a shame to have to add another, bookshop uh, to that stop, not least because we're all a little tired and sweaty uh, by the end of uh, Monday night uh, when we're out at uh, Treadwells and Foils. So perhaps we will figure out a solution or perhaps the uh, compilation of eccentrics and weirdos who die or sell their books to Treadwells will revive itself in the
0: upcoming uh, year in, in the great reaping of many many book owners will be felled i'm sure that's right so uh one book that you didn't get in the uh, evening but rather got in the morning when we went to the victoria and albert museum was the program book for the uh, show that you and i and rob hainso all caught together you say you want a revolution records and rebels 1966 to 1970 uh, and that's edited by victoria Brooks and jeffrey marsh the exhibit itself was uh uh, very cool, a lot. They covered a lot of uh, aspects of what we consider to be the 60s, but was really just a small chunk of the late uh, 60s when everything politically seemed to be coming apart and therefore there was a great artistic ferment. And so we got to see Keith Moon's drum set and uh, jimmy hendrix's smash guitar and one of his not smash guitars and a replica of the first computer mouse one of the interesting things they did about uh, the show is they showed how a lot of the 70s movements including the technology movement grew out of the uh, counterculture and this book i'm sure will be very handy to you as you work on fall of delta green did you uh, spot anything in particular that uh, got your uh, cthulhu synapses firing
1: I haven't seen anything specifically Cthulhuoid because, as you say, the the uh, exhibit was sort of broad rather than deep, and deep is where you'd usually find Cthulhu. But they did have a nice little section on the sort of occult revival of the 1960s. They had some exhibits with a whole bunch of books that came out in 66 to 70 that were, you know, me walking along saying, got it, got it, want it, got it, got it, want it. So that, um, that notion of the sixties occult revival, if they go into it any deeper in the catalog will be helpful. Just looking at the, at the sort of uh, the album covers, the titular records, uh, from the exhibit are all from John Peel's collection, the great uh, British DJ. And so just looking at those album covers is a way to sort of put yourself aesthetically into the 1960s and try and infuse the writing thusly in the same way that watching, uh, Bourne movies incessantly infused nice black agents uh, trying to sort of put myself into the 1960s hopefully gives the book a little different flavor than it would if I were just uh, doing the same sort of um, uh, post-punk that I normally do.
0: Yeah, you definitely see the transition between the album cover as publicity photo with a little bit of text slapped onto it into a designed art object that was weird and conceptual. And uh, that's uh, among the, the many threads that you can sort of follow through this broad, introduction to the 60s. There's also a lot of uh, cool 60s fashion. Yes. If you're, if you're Mary doing... Mary
1: Quant and all the other uh, legendary designers of the day, they had uh, examples of those costumes, then obviously more of those are in the art. Yeah.
0: And a special twiggy hanger that you would uh, get if you bought a twiggy-branded Twiggy, a twiggy, branded, dress. twiggy branded dress. And so if you want to imagine your fall of Delta Green in the non-standard mode that it's going on in my head, the Jim Steranko swinging 60s mode, uh, the Modesty Blaze mode, as it were, there's as lots it of were. fashion for that. And guess what? Uh, the next item on the list is Pieces of Modesty by Peter O'Donnell.
1: Wow. This is a collection of short stories starring Modesty Blaze, his uh, uh, spy heroine, um, sort of freelance spy. Modesty is a, begins as a uh, crime boss. Well, actually, she begins as a refugee, but then rises to crime boss and then stops being a crime boss in order to do sort of favors for a guy in British intelligence she kind of likes. And that is modesty all over. Uh, She remains uh, with one foot in the criminal world and one foot in the government world and goes on her own merry way. Uh, She is a delightful heroine. The books are great. Peter O'Donnell has a great sense of adventure. As far as I'm concerned, modesty blaze is of a piece with James Bond in the sense of wish fulfillment, uh, sixties. Um, although a lot of the bond stuff was turns out it's written in the fifties. Uh, there you go. But that wish fulfillment spirit is uh, very strong in modesty and is handled very well. And modesty at short length is no worse than modesty at long length. So whenever you see a Peter O'Donnell book that you don't have, snap it up. That's my motto.
0: From uh, funky miniskirt espionage to uh, dusty real thing espionage, we come to Shooting Leaves, spying out Central Asia in the Great Game by John Ewer.
1: Uh, John Ewer was apparently a uh, British diplomat in Russia back in the day, and uh, our day, not that time day. Shooting leave is what they would call it when a young British or Russian soldier would want to go off and pester the British or Russian empires in Central Asia. They couldn't officially send them to do that because they didn't want to acknowledge that whatever they were doing was on purpose, but... They would apply for shooting leave and go off into Central Asia to spy out the land and see what was what.
0: Mind if I go blow some things up? Why, well, yes, just uh, don't blame
1: us. And come back in time for the Easter parade. So they would, um uh, people like uh, Frederick Burnaby, the strongest man in uh, the British Empire, uh, Alexander Bokara Burns, Francis Young's husband, the guy that opened up Tibet um and then on the russian side you had people like uh nikolai Przvolsky of prizhvolsky's horse fame and all of these guys as young bucks would go off into central asia and get into trouble and it is guys who go off alone and get into trouble in foreign parts that is the core of all role playing so right there it's interesting plus that's a it's a fun era and if you have read um uh, flashman at the charge by uh, george macdonald fraser the great uh, novel of a Victorian rogue and poltroon, Harry Flashman. He goes from the Crimean War into Central Asia. And that gives you a sort of a, a grounding for the sort of things that these guys are getting up to. And it's, um, you know, it, it's just a little potted collection of about 15, I think, uh, mini biographies of these guys and the, and the activities that they got up to. But that means that you're just exploring one after another thrilling tale and or ripping yarn with a geopolitical context dished up on the side where it belongs.
0: Uh, on a similar tip, we have Victorious Spymasters, Empire and Espionage by Stephen Wade. Yes,
1: yeah, Stephen Wade is apparently, very recently, in the last few years, the British uh, Colonial Office and the India Office declassified their archives. Now, the Home Office under which, you know, MI5 and MI6 are supposed to fall. I guess MI6 falls under the foreign office. Either way, they have not declassified their archives of the period, but the colonial India offices did. So a lot of historians of uh, espionage are going through those archives to try and get a back look on what was going on back in London. The interesting thing about this book, Victoria's Spymasters, as Wade points out, is there isn't a history of Victorian espionage. And given the degree to which you are, you know, because of, uh, things like Kim, uh, associating Victoria with spying out, uh, the land of the great game. It's an odd oversight and he is attempting to, uh, rebuild it from these, uh, one-off sources. So he winds up looking at, uh, police histories that build up MI5 and military intelligence. He's done one of the, o- he's done the only history of Victorian army intelligence before that, but. He doesn't touch on the naval intelligence, uh, enough for me. And he doesn't actually get into the beginning, the pre MI6, uh, foreign service intelligence people. So he's got, you know, uh, two thirds or, or, or half of the, of the view in Victoria's Spymasters. But there's yet another book to be written once either another archive gets uncovered or some other historian figures out a way to burrow back into the, uh, Navy, into the Admiralty archives or into, um. Uh, the uh, Foreign Office.
0: So, uh, speaking of authors not giving you the books that you demand, mm-hmm. or the information that you demand in their books, uh, you were remarking uh, earlier in our trip about the paucity of information on uh, the reign of King Charles the uh, First. But you picked up a book called King Charles the First by Pauline Gregg. Uh, does this uh, first of all? Why do you have this yen? And does this book solve it?
1: Um, I'm going to be doing a write up of London in the reign of King Charles the First for. Uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. So London will be a fantasy city, just like your Middenheims and your uh And it will hopefully have depend on more than two books because I've found literally one book called London in the Reign of Charles I. And now I have a biography of Charles I. And this uh, looks like, you know, sort of your standard biography, all respectable with the king in a bust on the front. Um, uh, so one imagines the word "feather-headed poltroon" won't show up at all, or um, uh, <laughs> or, or
0: not next to each other, not anyway. next
1: to each other, or um, uh, complete idiot probably going to have to tease that out. So I, I was uh, struck uh, and I mentioned this to James Raggi, the impresario behind Lamentations, that he has managed to assign me the least documented period in London's history of the last 500 years. So, But
0: it's fantasy, so you can just make up a bunch of dwarves who are responsible for things. I'll pretend you didn't say that, Robin. <laughs> uh, next up, we have The Black Horseman, English Inns and King Arthur by R.G. Wildman. Uh, now, King Arthur books are a uh, often a deep source of doolally, but which uh, side of the fence does this fall on? Oh, this is
1: this is doolally, even if R.G. Wildman does not actually commit any overt craziness. So, it's not like King Arthur is the name of the guy who built Stonehenge. It's not King Arthur was a Scythian warlord. But, it's but he none did of the open some pubs. Really bananas, King Arthurs. This is just... King Arthur was that guy who rode around and beat up on the Saxons, and you can trace the lines of him beating up the Saxons by the locations of pubs called the Black Horse. And the theory behind this is that Archie Wildman noticed that pubs called the Black Horse are not evenly distributed across Britain, as far as he could tell. Um, (laughs) He had a local called the Black Horse, which goes to my theory that all books about King Arthur are written about... The author's neighborhood. They, they start with heavy
0: drinking and move they, on from there.
1: Ideally. And the line of, uh, king art of black horses that he was able to find by dint of looking in the phone book, not even the, <laughs> I don't know, registry of British pubs. You go to the British pub trade association. They have archives going back to the 1800s because it's Britain. He didn't do that. Just looked in the phone book. Good old R.G. Well,
0: that's how pareidolia works. The fuzzier the pattern, the easier it is to see
1: things. Yeah. So this guy uh, noted that the Saxons are legendarily called the White Horse, and so therefore their enemies, Arthur, must have been the Black Horse. And he figures out that there is a breed of horse, the Frisian horse, that is in fact black and would have <laughs> been possibly the kind of pony that was used by the Roman legions in Britain and best by King Arthur, and that if... King Arthur has the, um, uh, the, the strategic reserve of Frisian ponies. He is capable of building the feared Arthurian cavalry that has been literally made up from nothing by Arthurian historians on the grounds that something stopped the Saxons for 60 years. Let's pretend it was heavy cavalry. So the, the, the black horseman is good as far as it goes, but it starts from a completely dodgy premise and goes from there. So again, if you are into Arthur things, it's not crazy, but it is what do I want to say? <laughs> not
0: correct, either. I think do-lolly, uh, do-lolly. our initial term, probably yeah, it, there.
1: it, there's There's do-lolly, but I don't want anyone to think that it's heavier on the lolly than it is on the do. Right.
0: It's not crazy pants, it's just do-lolly. Do-lolly, right. All right. Uh, speaking of things that could go either way... And uh, that are do-lolly. <laughs> we have... The Restoration of Cock Robin, Nursery Rhymes and Carols, Restored to Their Original Meanings. Which original implies, meanings! It a certain amount of certitude by Norman Isles. Which side does this fall on? Norman Isles uh, wrote a book that I
1: think has been in a previous Ken's Bookshelf called Who Killed Cock Robin, which is about what happened to the Nursery Rhymes and Carols. And that his thesis there was that these were genuine expressions of of uh, festal emotion and religious emotion that had been domesticated by the fell hands of industry and capitalism and Presbyterianism and whatever else was wrong with England.
0: (laughs) All of those dread forces.
1: All those dread forces of guys in tight collars telling you to get back to work. So that was his first thesis, which was as far as it went probably pretty unexceptional because music played a gigantic life in the in the life of the mind of uh, 16th century and before people because that's all that's the only art form you have reliable access to so of course you care deeply yeah, about it
0: their video games were not very
1: good their video games well they were repetitive is what it was you yeah. play shakespeare pong once you've pretty much played all you need to play and now uh in that book he begins to hint that they are representative of something greater with druids and the sun and blah, 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 but he doesn't have the room to breathe on that restoration of cock robin is where we breathe. And we find out that yes, all of these songs are actually about human sacrifices and druids and, uh, the Holly King versus the Oak King and the whole JG Frazierian cultus once more being dragged back in this time being attached to uh, nursery rhymes and carols and traditional songs, which is, uh, where you traditionally put them because that's what 19th century folklorists right. decided were the, um, uh, things left over from the primordial and distant unfindable past. Uh, although, of course, once you look at any given folk song, you can pretty much trace it down to about, you know, 1600, uh, give or take a hundred years. There's almost nothing that comes down to us from medieval times, lyrics intact and the things that are are all church music which we already know what their secret meaning is they are jesus is rad and stop being a jerk to jesus
0: uh well that's weird that uh, the songs only start around 1600 since the name of the pubs goes back to like 600 AD that's, exactly that is
1: odd and so someone would probably have to write a um a comparison piece that uh explains why images in pub signs are maybe tied into medieval heraldry or something right. so you so can have the a the
0: original meaning of cock robin is We have Edward Woodward in The Wicker Man past the torch. Past the torch. Or possibly this
1: is where um, uh, Sir Gawain used to hang out back in in ancient times. Yeah, at the Black Horse. At the Black Horse. What the cock robin? Right, the Black Horse was Arthur's pub, so Sir Gawain would be at the Cock Robin.
0: Oh, okay. They they all have their separate locals and that's Everyone why they needed their a local. round table that's how to it all is. get exactly. them because
1: they wouldn't they couldn't agree on a pub. Cuz they couldn't agree on a pub, they had to build a new one. That's what Camelot was. It was just the biggest best sort of a super pub, if you will. Yeah, oh, there you go. It was the cream of pubs.
0: Right. Um, it's so, it, it was round so that the one person at the end didn't have to pick up the tab. Okay, well, we're, we're solving a lot of, yes, well, that's what happens when you start here. reading,
1: um, uh, uh, English folklore studies. You start solving problems you didn't even know were problems yet. Right.
0: Uh, well, speaking of that, um uh, The Secret Lore of London edited by John Matthews.
1: Oh, good old John Matthews. If you are of my, uh tendency, you
0: recognize
1: <laughs> that John Matthews is a national treasure. Um He is a druid and a magic dude and is very earnest and with his, uh, I suppose, wife, Caitlin Matthews, um, he is an indefatigable writer down of other people's good ideas, and he has that sort of happy, sieve-like mind through which anything can be poured, and he will delightedly recycle it for you <laughs> in the broad church context of Gruids and J.G. Fraser and the occasional lopped-off head, but he's um, uh, he's just so he's, – he's, he's, he's dreamy. He's just a great guy. And I'm sure that he would be a delight to hang out with in any pub, uh, even the Black Horse, much less the Cock Robin. Um, the Secret War of London is an anthology of a bunch of uh, legends and things about London, Uh this edition, I have the older one, this is the newer one, this edition has a foreword by Ian Sinclair, which, as far as I'm concerned, is worth the price alone. Gold standard. And, gold standard. And then there's a gazetteer in the back, which is all the places in London you can go and you can see, oh, this is where the Sacrifice Hill happened, oh, this is where King Arthur sat down briefly before going to the Black Horse, oh, this is another thing. And so... Uh, that's fun for your occult, um, uh, uh, tourism back and forth. And it's a combination of sort of newer writers like, uh, Matthews and, uh, Gareth Knight and Nigel Panic. And a, I say newer in the generic sense, obviously, Penic's great era was newer there. in druid terms. But it also has some of the classics like Lewis Spence, who was uh the you know upholder of the crazy banner in the twenties, and then um uh it you know quotes from various uh older sources when it can. So it's sort of a general notion of uh it's a it's an infigory, if you will, of stuff about Magic London. And it's um uh it it it's great fun if you love London and if you love Secret Lore. There's nothing wrong with this, and Matthews is uh, to be commended. I hope he gets a knighthood. Uh, I, I like him so much.
0: Well, uh, still in the uh, roughly same wheelhouse, we have Gods with Thunderbolts, Religion in Roman Britain by Guy de la Bedoyere. This, uh, by
1: contrast, is a grown-up book for grown-up people by a real historian, and uh, it is, I think, to be looked at in connection with uh, ro- uh, Ronald Hutton's uh, the history of paganism in the British Isles. This just talks about Roman Britain, and it doesn't talk just about paganism because it talks about Christianity, but it's a straight-up, what does the archaeological record say? What does the epigraphic record say? We may suspect, for example, that Nodens is more widely worshipped because Nuava plays a giant role in the Irish legends, and uh, to the extent we know anything about the Welsh pagan li- uh, life, uh, Lud plays a similarly large role Nodens is cognate with those guys, so we could theorize that he was widely worshipped. But if you look at the actual data, there's one spot in, uh, Lindney, uh, in the Severn Valley where we know he was worshipped and everywhere else is just, um, you know, maybe one pot shirt has, has been found with his name, but he's very, very, uh, minor. If you look at the record and Della Bedoyer, the author, our buddy Guy, um, is very, very clear-eyed and straightforward. Uh, he doesn't, want to pour cold water on anyone, but he wants to make sure everyone's dealing from the same deck, and that the deck is legitimate and no one slips in a bunch of uh, Victorian stuff and nonsense. So, um, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's a very good history. It's gonna be super useful if, you know, anyone wants to run a RuneQuest game in Roman Britain, because every god's gotta look up and there's a, there's a little list of them in the back so you can figure out who's got what cult where, and, uh, uh, but a lot of it is gonna be if you come into it thinking one thing, uh Better will bring you up short because if the epigraphic uh evidence doesn't support it, he is not going to play you out a very long string. Uh
0: now we come to uh, someone who surprisingly has yet to feature in a consulting occultist segment, but uh I'm sure ought to in the future. Uh we this is the Catalpa monographs, a critical survey of Austin Osman. Spare by Dr. William Wallace. So, uh, who was Spare? Let's start with that.
1: Austin Osmond Spare was a uh, artist. Um, uh, he began arting in the very early 1900s, like 1904, 1905, uh, and was simultaneously very interested in the occult, and hand-copied out grimoires, and started to uh, write them himself, and those two interests continued to overlap. He fell in with Crowley, and then fell out with Crowley because, um, he was a real artist with yeah. talent and those kind of people tended to get steamed at Crowley. Um, but he maintained, he, he remained influenced by Crowley's, uh, sort of magical architecture and magical theories for the rest of his life and would, uh, attempt either to exorcise them or illustrate them, depending on what you thought he was doing. Um, and then he managed to sort of live a great long time, uh, until, uh, 1956. Uh, and just long enough for Kenneth Grant to rediscover him in the course of looking into everyone who Crowley ever met. And so, um, uh, Kenneth Grant, not being a, uh, orthodox Crowleyan or a hardcore Crowleyan, but being someone who, uh, is fond of the whole left hand path, uh, Thelemic universe, uh, thought Spare was the bee's knees and really talked him up, which is why he had sort of a, uh, a, a revival of interest, sadly mostly after he died. And so every now and again you will see little exhibits of him or see him mentioned in uh various uh, uh compilations of the occult. Um I suspect Alan Moore is hugely influenced by Austin Osmond Spare, which means at, at least two degrees, I am usually inf- influenced by Austin Osmond Spare. And um, uh, this uh, fellow, William Wallace, is, I guess, the world's leading expert on Austin Osmond Spare. He wrote two books, the early works of Austin Osman Spare and the late works of Austin Osmond Spare and the Catalpa monographs, because they were from Catalpa Press back in the day. Um, uh, have been combined, those two books, into one combined edition, which has new scholarly material, and as many reproductions of Spare's work as he can, although they are usually kind of small. This is uh, a normal-sized book. It's not 8 um, uh, eight and a half by 11, even, much less a big old coffee table book of Austin Osmond Spare, but looking at it, you'll get at least a sense of uh what what spare is up to and certainly reading the text you're never going to read anything uh that knows more about Austin Osman Spare I think than uh William Wallace's stuff so it's it's a good uh one-stop shop if your AO Spare uh habit is not going to go to expensive art books which mine almost certainly won't um and uh I don't know if they overprinted them or if this was just a thing where I, I got in on uh the the uh Brexit uh exchange rate drop, but that was it was very reasonably priced at Treadwell's and it was brand new. So I, I snapped it up on the grounds that who doesn't want spare? He's similar, uh his early stuff is very similar to Beardsley. There's that sort of decadence and the and the line work is very similar, although he sort of begins to get a little more surrealist and dolly ish uh, later on in his in his art.
0: Yeah, and that's sort of a mannerist
1: kind of angular yeah. feel to it. Sort of, um if Modigliani drew and was an occult crazy person, you'd get a little of that.
0: Uh Next up, penultimately, we have The 37th Parallel, The Secret Truth Behind America's UFO Highway by Ben Mesrick.
1: This is the worst kind of UFO book. And I don't mean crazy because they're all crazy. This is the kind where it's all in the first person and it's about the guy saying, I went out looking for the UFO truth and I did this and I did that. And then I went and I talked to the guy that my book is actually about. And so it's not even... The guy who discovered the secret truth behind U- America's UFO highway, it's Ben Mesrick writing about the guy. So, it's two orders of distance away from the actual secret truth, which is, hey, aren't there a lot of UFO sightings near the 37th parallel? And no, we don't have a theory, because why would we have a theory? It's taken me this long to explain that I went out to this guy in his um, uh, in his uh, mobile home, and I think the guy who came with the theory has a wife and kids, which... Has got to be. I want to see the movie about that guy. Uh, sort of, you know, the the close encounters with no aliens at the end. Yeah,
0: because if there's anything we love in our nonfiction, it's extended quotidian uh, personal
1: anecdotes. Exactly. That's what really brings a book to life, or whatever the opposite of that is. So I'm, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a fan of of, of that book specifically. Although I, I do like the idea of plotting UFO uh, sightings in a in a line. I think that. FW Holiday did it best in Dragon and the Disc, and everyone else is just following along behind him. Uh, so if you want one book about UFOs and weird lines, I recommend that one. I cannot recommend, uh, 37th parallel, although I, I may dive back into it and see if there's any nuggets to be, uh, dragged out and written down just so that I don't ever have to dive back into it again. But that'll be if I'm ever doing any, um, uh, Moondust Men stuff or anything like that. I'm, I'm not gonna, use that as a, as a reference, uh, for anything because it isn't.
0: So finally, uh, circling back to where we started, we come to the Hexen 2.0 tarot by Suzanne Trister, which was used as a a design element in the, you say you want a revolution exhibit.
1: All right. Where I was saying that, you know, John Matthews deserves a knighthood. Suzanne Trister deserves to be made Empress of a Caribbean Island. She is that best of all things a good artist with a sense of humor who is into conspiracy theory. I ran into her with an earlier work of hers called Hexen 2039 New Military Occult Technologies for a Psychological Warfare a Rosalind Brodsky research program. So Suzanne Trister made up an alter ego named Rosalind Brodsky who was a student of military occult technology and as an artist put together a fake notebook of Rosalind Brodsky's research. So rather than recycling everyone's stupid conspiracy theories, she goes in and takes out the funnest and most interesting and brightest colored bits of other people's conspiracy theories and assembles them into a new pattern. And that is, uh, what your, uh, Alan Moore does. That is what, uh, Suzanne Treister does. It's what I, in my poor best attempt to do as well. And so having discovered Hexen 2039 and recognizing her name, I then ran across a mention of her new tarot, the Hexen 2.0 tarot uh, in various corners that I uh, study and had seen images of it and it was not published in America yet. And so I put it on my Amazon uh, wait list and pre-ordered it and forgot all about it. And then we went to the exhibit and lo and behold, there it was all over the exhibit like a rash.
0: Like the best possible, like you would be rash. Oh, yes, like,
1: it. like not a rash. Uh, what, what do I mean? Like if rashes were like mana, like mana, like mana, exactly, yeah. like mana from crazy people heaven. And, uh, so the, 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 the shtick of the, of the tarot is that it presents various pieces and bits and uh, slogans and people of the sort of overlap of the occult and alchemy and cybernetics and the counterculture and the internet as the sort of foundational archetypes murbling around beneath the world and then expresses them in tarot cards that look like nothing so much as a uh, seventeenth century didactic drawings through a mid twentieth century or even earlier twentieth century lens, so if you 've seen these sorts of um uh, Political cartoons that were that were out, where everything has a label and everyone has a a little name and a purpose, and there's um uh, nine parts of everything. Rosicrucian art, the the later Rosicrucians in America and Britain used to do art like this. That was all very didactic and over labeled. That's what her tarot cards are, because she's working in that same artistic tradition. Again, because she's an artist and therefore capable of synthesizing and improving on craziness instead of just vomiting it back up at you. And the the Hexen 2.0 Tarot does all of those things. Uh, So it's not specifically a conspiracy theory, and it's not so much a straight up history of uh, these things as it is, I guess, a secret history attempting to re illuminate some things and draw Warrantless conclusions because that's what tarot decks do. They lay things out and then you draw warrantless conclusions based on the fact that, oh my God, we've got an upside down Prince of Cups next to the tower.
0: Right. Ah." And so if there are all these super detailed illustrations with little uh, curlicues and nuggets and labels, that's all sorts of things that you can use to find your associations between the different cards. Exactly.
1: If you are running, I would say, an Unknown Armies game. Um, you need to have this fall into the hands of the Infomancer or whatever. This needs to be a thing that some guy is basing their life on because that is the sort of thing that it would do. I, you know, if, if you are a, if you look at the, the Hexen 2.0 tarot, um, and you can't make games out of it, then you need to go get your game making engine tuned up, I would say. And, uh, I, I th- think it's still waiting to be published in America, but they, because they had them as part of the exhibit, they were selling them in the museum gift shop, so haha, I am the proud possessor of a Hexen 2.0 tarot. Literally months before people who don't special order it from Suzanne Trister can get it.
0: Well, uh, that's the end of our list, so uh, that's the end of this segment, but our next segment, which will be on the other side of this upcoming uh, commercial, will be somewhat related. What did Isaac Newton discover in
1: an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths... That sounds could be- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF
0: at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric
1: oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right?
0: Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Rune Punk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy, beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of
1: Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from
0: Ask for for. Ask AskFegeln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Robin P. Smith. Ludovic Chabant, Brent Brown. Peter Nix.
1: And Andrew Collins. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's Ask Ken and Robin. Christopher Calley, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin, has there ever been a Ken and Robin talk about their physical libraries segment? No, there hasn't. Oh, well, there you go. Good night. Thanks. <laughs> Callie continues as if foreseeing that very interpolation. I'm especially curious about the TARDIS-like mental picture I have of Ken's library, but I'd also like to know how Robin keeps his books happy. That's a, that's a good way. That's a very polite way, Christopher. I'm, you were raised well. Uh, kudos to your parents for having you say, Oh, yeah. And I also want to know about Robin's library too. Right. That's, that's also valuable to me.
0: Well, uh, let's start by saying that Robin's library is far less interesting than, uh, than Ken's because my wife and I have chosen to live downtown in a big, beautiful city, the city of Toronto, meaning that, uh, our, those things are true. Yep. That our rent money does not buy a lot of extra rooms to put books in. And so I have to be, uh, very uh, parsimonious with which books warrant shelf space. Uh, so I'm not saying we don't own any books. We own certainly enough books to make the movers complain whenever we have to move from one apartment to another. But uh, it's it's n- nothing like canon, and I am trying to get away from the impulse to own books because I'm emotionally attached to them or because I think it says something about me or my past, especially since our books are actually mostly in our bedroom where nobody hangs out except us, so it's not <laughs> like they're going <laughs> to be... Valerie already knows you and your past. Yeah, it's not like there's going to be big conversation starters there, so... Now, I would much rather acquire an electronic book that I can uh, make notes in and uh, and follow, and that does not take up physical shelf space and, and you can carry it around on your phone about getting rid of uh, books that uh, I do not have an immediate use for. It used to be that I would be punished by the gods of writing for ever getting rid of any nonfiction book by ah, it's a, the worst. M- a month a month later, I would need to know about dinosaurs after getting rid of my dinosaur book. But guess what? Uh, we have the internet now, and uh, the rare times when you uh, need a book that you've gotten rid of, you can just repurchase it electronically. But Ken, such is not your wont. This is not my way, Robin.
1: I am of the way that uh, all books are mine, and I am merely formalizing it slowly. My big, beautiful city has provided me with a neighborhood where I can buy a townhouse for uh, Star Trek developer money and did uh and got uh, very, very lucky. I point out you can't not all Star Trek developers hashtag, but I was able to sneak in. So I have a basement, which the previous owners had thoughtfully insulated from the uh, worst of the weather. And so that basement is now full of shelves and the, uh, there are shelves against all the walls of the basement. There are two rows of standing bookshelves in the middle of that basement. And on that library-like set of stacks, I put the majority of my library, although there is plenty more books visible from where I'm sitting right now because in my office, uh, all the walls are also books, and there is a freestanding bookcase in the middle of the floor, but it's not floor to ceiling because then, A, I would die when it toppled over on me, and B, I wouldn't be able to see anything, and I would die because of the lack of light.
0: Yes, and having books topple on you and kill you, would yes. be one of those like ancient Greek poetically apt imaginary deaths that they yes. to assign to yes, people. It would. But still, I, I prefer not to have that happen.
1: I would as well. And of course, uh, as uh, Hyde Parkers um, and people who must hold up a University of Chicago front, uh, we do in fact have fl- uh, floor to ceiling bookcases against. Uh, one of the walls in the living room so that people who walk by can look in and say, yes, those are University of Chicago people and not to be trifled with intellectually. Um, everyone in the neighborhood does that. And uh, the cookbooks have their own shelf near the right, kitchen. Because
0: otherwise, you run the risk of people running up to ring your doorbell to trifle with you intellectually.
1: Exactly. And I can't have that. I'm too busy trifling with myself intellectually. Um, uh, looking up uh, nonsense about nursery rhymes by uh, Norman Isles.
0: I did once have someone ring our doorbell of a previous apartment where we could see our stuff from the ground floor. They thought we were a video store.
1: Ah, or at could like lend them a DVD. I, b- I believe that. Um, actually, I have seen your DVD collection. Um, uh, and yes, I believed I was in a DVD store
0: briefly. Yes, my own. That's self. the one that's on public display for. Uh, conversation starting purpose. Exactly. And the thing that I actually have to re- re- refer to on an ongoing basis. Right. And,
1: um, uh, and it's delightful. Uh, it's, it's a lovely collection. Although even there you're, you're sort of pressed for space,
0: right? Uh, we are now having to cull things. Yes.
1: Yeah. Now are you culling, or Are you, because what I've done is I've started taking my DVDs and I've put them into uh little plastic sleeves and put the little plastic sleeves in a notebook.
0: I think Valerie might regard that as more blasphemous than just getting rid of things that we're not going to ever watch again.
1: Yeah, I, I can I can see the argument because it is a shame to lose the the little art and whatnot, but at some point I, I, w- I might want to watch the movies again and I almost never want to read the label again.
0: Uh, there is that thought, but we digress. But we do digress.
1: Um, yeah, so the books are, I guess, you know, generally organized by subject matter uh, to an extent. Uh, Sheila's books are all downstairs in the, in the living room, except for uh, the ones that are in the basement in true crime or... The uh, <laughs> evidence for the prosecution in the case of my mysterious death, as I like to call that section.
0: <laughs> so, do you uh, group things by the Dewey Decimal System, just roughly by your own series of categories? How do you it's, do that?
1: It's roughly by my own series of categories. Um, for example, uh, on the down in, in the in the basement, there is a shelf that is all by itself, the 20th century. Uh, so it's 20th century history and everything goes in there except for specific American history subject matter, because America is nicely lined out on uh, one of the middle shelves all the way from the beginning to the end. And I d- didn't want to disrupt that uh, system. Um And then, you know, espionage used to be on one shelf and it's now on two different shelves. So Anglo-American espionage is one place and everybody else's espionage is another place. Chicago books and London books are on one shelf. All lesser cities go on other shelves. Um, that sort of thing. So it's it's idiosyncratic, but uh, I guess it's sort of a memory palace in the way that I can figure out where everything is eventually.
0: And so how uh, long does it take you to get a book that you suddenly realize that you need? It, depending on the book,
1: every now and again, there will be a book that I thought was one place and it turns out to be another place. And so that can be, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes of, of looking from place to place. Uh, but usually if it's in the spot where I thought it was, I can lay my hand on it in, you know, uh, two or three minutes. Uh, again, I have to get downstairs, and if Virgil is, you know, following me, then there has to be a little roughhousing uh, to keep him happy. But uh, by and large, the basement is Virgil's domain, so when I go down and uh, look in my books there, v- Virgil has, you know, opinions, and so those have to be taken into account. So he,
0: he's your Cerberus, basically. He is
1: very much the the Cerberus of, of the of the, or the Minotaur, if you will, of the basement labyrinth. Of books.
0: And uh, very occasionally uh, we'll be doing the podcast and you will realize uh, in mid-sentence that you need a book and then you have to go off down to the library. And there have been, I think, one or two occasions when you're unable to lay your hands on, on something. So I guess... Uh, Virgil occasionally reshelves things just to mess with you and get a better grade of kibble.
1: In, in some cases it's not even um, uh, Virgil messing with me as it is the uh, icy hand of mortality uh, where I will have thought that something was in one book and it was not in that book and then figuring out which book it was in is the thing that takes a little longer, uh, certainly longer than we have to wait uh, mid-podcast. Uh, but usually if I, if I have an actual book in mind um, uh, I can lay my hand on it relatively rapidly because I am not yet at the point where I have forgotten whether I own a book. Uh, I am I am still in the sort of mid-state of, of that uh, deliquescence.
0: And do you have a, a big stack of unsorted books or do they all go lickety-split into their categories as soon as you can? Unsorted
1: books uh, pile up around the uh, living room coffee table and uh, at some point we will either have company coming over or Sheila will uh, express an interest in her true crime section. And it'll be time for me to uh, sort those out and, and move them where, where, where I can in my office, the general Elliptony collection is here. And I grant you that some of those books are not currently sorted. Uh, there is a, what used to be the relaxing guest chair or the sit quietly and read chair and is now the home for unsorted books chair. And, uh, the, they would be sorted faster, but there is literally no more bookshelf space. Uh, on the elliptony shelves. So I have to either cull elliptony again, which one hesitates to do, or I have to um, uh, just move them out of the, uh, out of the chair and into piles on the floor, which I'm reluctant to do just structurally.
0: Uh, Well, I think that gives uh, Christopher and everyone else a a mental image of uh, our two respective libraries. And then you can imagine uh, Ken reshelving, or shelving, I suppose, the books that he just talked about in our previous segment, which means that it's time to move on to yet another segment. The skies are dim always since the Maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted
1: puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer.
0: You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sown from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The
1: gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December.
0: Featuring full color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales
1: by contributors such as...
0: Kenneth Hite. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder-Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you. It's time once more to make our way up the creaking cobweb stairs to briefly nod to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on in to the parlor of the Consulting Occultist. And uh, this time out, uh, Derek Upham has engaged the services of the Consulting Occultist to tell us about Ralstonism. And uh, first off, we have to carefully uh, disclaimer the fact that Ken... You practice a completely unrelated form of Ralstonism.
1: Yes. No, the the form of Ralstonism that I practice is uh, it has very simple tenets. Take out the damn garbage. What uh, do you think you're uh, doing w- with that cat? And uh, you can only go into the bookstore for 20 minutes. And those are, those are very, very uh, pure, wholesome tenets that everyone should be proud to live their life by. And that if I don't live my life by, I am promised... Um, uh, a uh, a swift damnation in uh in in uh, the terrestrial existence, right? And
0: so, of course, that's Sheila Ralstonism.
1: Sheila Ralston, uh, but there's another Ralstonism. There is another Ralston. Uh,
0: the Ralstonism created by Webster Edgerly, yes, uh, a man who decided that the name Webster Edgerly was insufficiently euphonious for a line of self-help books, <laughs> and wrote under the name Edmund Shaftesbury. And so you think, well, who's Ralston? Well, Ralston is an acronym, an acronym for Regime, Activity, Light, Strength, Temperation, Oxygen, and Nature. And it's
1: the w- lamest Shazam ever. Yes.
0: <laughs> and uh, uh, Webster Edgley, I guess he flourished uh, uh, in the uh, bookends of the uh, turn of the 20th century. He was active in uh, the late 19th and early uh, 20th. And uh, there's a whole lot going on here, uh, as you may sense the next time you eat a bowl of Czech cereal. So, Ken, where do you start unpacking the various elements of Ralstonism?
1: Um, Well, where don't you start? Uh, Traditionally, people who study Ralstonism start with um, uh, Ralston Heights in uh, 1905 in Hopewell, New Jersey, which at that time was just a valley, and uh, Webster Edgerly bought all the land in the valley and named it Ralston Heights, and now it is called Hopewell, New Jersey, and that will tell you just how good a job he did of building a perfect planned community, because everything must be perfectly planned and exist in curves, because angles and sudden stops cause leakage of vital force. So he designed uh, Ralston Heights to be nothing but curved roads and swooping things. Everything's in sevens, because the principles of Ralstonism, the seven letters in Ralston. So there's sort of a numerological quality to it. He built himself a big Ralston mansion to live in uh, on the proceeds of selling his self-help books to members of the Ralston Health Club that he founded. Uh, And uh, he claimed there were 800,000 members of the Ralston Health Club. Uh, Some people have gone so far as to say there were maybe millions of members of the Ralston Health Club. Uh, I think that probably there were many, many fewer, or it would not be Hopewell, New Jersey today.
0: Right. Because when when you bought a copy of any of his books, you, you were, enrolled, were
1: automatically therein inducted into the Ralston Health Club. And you would be able to advance in by degrees through the Magnetism Club and through the Ralston Health Club by the act of buying his books. And there were 100 degrees, and you got five degree points for buying uh, each book. And uh, He had a
0: system where people could pay him different amounts of money and it would give them different degrees of, uh, access and privilege. Hmm. 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 Ken, we're a cult. Ah! Oh, I,
1: I like to think of us as a very, um, uh, as a very specific in its appeal Masonic society. Yes, that sounds better. Yeah, that's my theory. Anyhow's, in addition to not stopping suddenly and not making angular movements, he believed that if you, um, uh, uh were in interested in keeping your vital force unleaked, then you would uh have sex in a specific way and you would bathe in a specific way and you would eat food that followed a specific dietary guidelines. For example, white people are not supposed to eat watermelon because it's poisonous. It's deadly poisonous. Deadly poisonous. And um uh if you ate and uh correct diet and exercised in a proper way, uh, then you would be able to gain control of your personal magnetism. And, and personal magnetism is not just about making people like you. It's also about bending people to your will.
0: Mind control, which is why this is in the consulting occultist section. And
1: also total body control. Uh, the the notion of how you can tell if you are a fully vital roustany guy is you can carry a glass of water and and rotate it, swirling it around so that the water runs centripetally up the outside of the glass to form a sphere of water on top of the glass. And that is the way that you can tell uh, what is called the Great Rose Leaf Experiment. You can fill the glass over full, uh, swirl it around. And balance a rose leaf on the water. And when you can do that, then you have total bodily control and can then uh, begin tapping into those inner, uh, inner magnetism minds with your mind control and your hypnotism and such. And it was successful enough. Uh, certainly his diet uh, guidelines were that the Purina food company, which at that point were making, uh, mostly pet foods said, we think we could probably branch this health-giving pet food business of ours out into health-giving people food, and we would like the Ralston seal of approval on our Purina foods, and I assume a fat lot of money exchanged hands, and sure enough, they became Ralston Whole Foods, uh distributed by Purina, and it was such a success that I think in 1902, Purina became the Ralston Purina Company. And so- it, well, no, now it is Ralcorp. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. But there's still a brand, Ralston still Purina. A,
0: Isn't the pet food still called that?
1: The pet food is still called Purina. I don't know if it's still called uh, Ralston because... Pet food, part of it, got spun off and is sold to Nestle now.
0: So maybe there's no uh, vestigial reference to this mind control cult in, the-
1: except the the Ralcorp, which is uh, its own company now. Right. Anyhow, the good people of uh of, of Ralcorp, wow, they literally make nothing anyone has ever eaten. Um, I suspect <laughs> it's it's industrial foods now, or or what they do is they make the store brand stuff. Right. So that's what they do. Um, anyhow's, I think they're still making cereal though, because I think they bought Post. We are way the hell and gone away from Webster-Edgerly,
0: though. Right. But, the but larger point being... Uh, that there are points of uh, Ralstonism that are not mentioned on the RALCorp uh, corporate website.
1: No, they are not. And in fact, the RALCorp corporate website, if you write away and say, Why are you Ralston Purina? They will make up a person named Ralston. <sighs> they will not even bra- mention Webster-Edgerly. Because one of the other things that is poisonous to Caucasians is any interaction with non-Caucasians
0: have yeah, come to the point <laughs> of this segment where it's like, "What? this occultist uh, atrociously racist? And the answer, the answer is way oh my, hell's atrociously yes. racist.
1: Hells yes. Uh, he has any number of problems with, uh, with, with non-white people and uh, felt that they were uh, it was probably just best to um, uh, euthanize them and uh, sterilize them so that there wouldn't be a bunch of uh, non-white people running around interfering with your vital force. One uh, can be happy to know that his entire contribution to the outside world pretty much comes in serial form and not in eugenics form. Oh, uh, He also, uh, we should not skip over, in fact, he also invented his own language, which he would, of course, say was not invented, but rediscovered it being the language of Adam or the Adam-man-tongue, which had a 33-letter alphabet of, of course, webster Edgerley's own design. And this will strike a lot of people as very similar to what the Nazis were getting up to because the Nazis, of course, also had uh the Armaninist movement, which was all about uh physical movements and about crazy runes and primordial alphabets that they'd made up and healthy, healthy eating and staying away from non-white people and all manner of other things. And so what Edgerly is and what Ralstonism is, is sort of an American version of the Armanist movement that rose up in Germany at pretty much exactly the same time. So one suspects that there is a current running through Western industrialized society that is making people nervous about what they're eating and nervous about who they're meeting in the strange new streets of this brave new world and therefore causing them to race into purity of all things. And I suppose we should count our blessings that um, the organic and artisanal food movements in our day, which are basically the same response, are not being conjoined with eugenicism. So I suppose we do advance, if only by hobbly little steps. Uh, But um, you can see the same sort of uh, connection between uh, health fadism and purification of various sorts in less overtly awful things like the graham cracker, because of course Sylvester Graham believed you should only eat um, uh, uh, unmilled grain, and that that was what was good for you, and that's right. why he invented a cracker made of it. And we all love graham crackers today.
0: And, and the original cracker was not the, the tasty sweet thing. No, it was not. We think of today, but it a rather terrible.
1: cardboardy version. It was. It was awful. But uh, as with as with Ralstonism, the the rough edges got knocked off until everyone could enjoy. It. Yes.
0: This crazy belief system would be better as a layer under a cheesecake. It would be better if uh, sugar were added
1: and it were crumbled up. Take that food purity. Or put between chocolate and marshmallow, the s'more, yes. the slap back at Ralstonism invented by America's scouting movement. Um, the scouting movement also invented by crazy back to nature uh, fringe people. <laughs> right.
0: And, and so Ralstonism is, uh, it, it's interesting to compare it with the, uh, the Teutonic version because the American version is overtly hucksterish. <laughs> exactly, it's all about
1: selling books. It's not all about putting together people to march around and beat up uh, Jews.
0: Yeah, which he's, is he's good. thinking about <laughs> exterminating people, but he's mostly selling you a whole bunch of books.
1: All he's doing is saying, "Look, if you want the world to be as good as you can be, to exterminate everyone, but just buy the book about exterminating." Right. That's and what and I as really As you
0: exterminate him. people, do it in a circular motion.
1: Right. As you exterminate them, move your arms slowly and around. And that will be the best kind of, um, uh, of exterminating. Yeah, he wrote about 80 books, but it's hard to tell because Shaftesbury is only one of his pseudonyms. He also did write at least one book, I think, under the name Ralston. And then he had other pseudonyms that he had for other books. And, uh, all of his books basically would take pieces out of his other books and quote them. They're really, really tiresome to read. Uh, I looked at one of them in the course of, uh, doing my due diligence and, Oh, man, is it a brain-turner-offer? Uh, lots of anecdotes. Uh, you know, one man moved in an angular fashion and was hit by a falling brick type stuff. Just endlessly, over and over and over again. Uh, but if you're interested in Ralstonism as sort of a, um, uh, a uh impetus for some sort of weird uh, eugenicist doc savagey type movement in your role-playing game that is set uh, between 1890 and 1925 or so... I think you could do a lot worse than have a bunch of weirdos wandering around eating whole grain cereal and practicing personal magnetism. So if you're into um uh, sex magnetism, you can look that up. Um uh, The other mind, including the science of all phenomena and the practice of all forms of human control. That's another big one. Universal magnetism, a private training course in the magnetic control of others. So you can sort of see where he's going. It's, it's sort of half pickup artist, half foodie. Uh, is, is, is the, is the Ralston way. Um, uh, which, uh, I, again, in, uh, reinforce- not delicious
0: food as, as we think in the, no. the term foodie, but, uh, no. purity food, a no, but food.
1: It takes all the, all the actual fun out of being a foodie and only leaves the part where you lecture other people. Yes. So yeah. So for some people it takes none of the fun out.
0: Right. So have we, uh, left any, uh, uh, raisins in the bowl as it were, or have we covered all of the main points of Ralstonism?
1: I think that we've sort of, you know, we've, we've hit the high points. Uh, again, someone writes 80 books of crazy. I'm sure there are yet more raisins lurking down there. But you have to reach through a lot of damn brand flakes to get to them, in my opinion.
0: Uh, well, I think uh, at this point we've made everybody hungry. Uh, hopefully not for uh, nasty old cereal, but uh, something more delicious. So let's let everybody go and have a, a lovely snack as we exit our podcast for yet another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy
1: Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple, audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin.
0: Join such punctilious archivists as
1: Horatio Rutkowski, Patrick Griffin, The Redacted Files Podcast,
0: Matt Ballara.
1: and Sean Cross.
0: Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other
1: erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.